Content in this episode may be graphic or triggering. Please take care while listening. Attention all true crime and mystery lovers. Are you tired of reading the same old detective stories? Well, look no further because my book, The Case, is here to satisfy your cravings for a thrilling and suspenseful read. Follow my journey as I unravel a complicated homicide case while almost losing my own family in the process. The case has twists and turns at every corner. You'll be on the edge of your seat until the very end. But don't just take our word for it. Crime and Cookie Juice followers everywhere are raving about the case. They can't get enough of the clever plots and intriguing characters that keep them guessing until the final pages. So why wait? Purchase the case on Amazon today and experience the excitement for yourself. Trust us, you won't regret it. Attention all true crime and mystery lovers. Are you tired of reading the same old detective stories? Well, look no further, because my book, The Case, is here to satisfy your cravings for a thrilling and suspenseful read. Follow my journey as I unravel a complicated homicide case while almost losing my own family in the process. The case has twists and turns at every corner. You'll be on the edge of your seat until the very end. But don't just take our word for it. Crime and Cookie Juice followers everywhere are raving about the case. They can't get enough of the clever plots and intriguing characters that keep them guessing until the final pages. So why wait? Purchase the case on Amazon today and experience the excitement for yourself. Trust us, you won't regret it. Attention all true crime and mystery lovers. Are you tired of reading the same old detective stories? Well, look no further, because my book, The Case, is here to satisfy your cravings for a thrilling and suspenseful read. Follow my journey as I unravel a complicated homicide case while almost losing my own family in the process. The case has twists and turns at every corner You'll be on the edge of your seat until the very end. But don't just take our word for it. Crime and Cookie Juice followers everywhere are raving about the case. They can't get enough of the clever plots and intriguing characters that keep them guessing until the final pages. So why wait? Purchase the case on Amazon today and experience the excitement for yourself. Trust us, you won't regret it. Welcome back to the Crime and Cookie Juice podcast. Tonight, we're kicking off the case that has been in the headlines for decades, followed by an interview with one of our favorite crime scene investigators. But before we start digesting evidence, we got to make sure we have our favorite cookie juice. So Fatima, what kind of cookie juice do you have? So I'm a little bougie tonight. I'm like bringing out the big guns on episode two. <laughs> you know I'm so right. excited about our guests that I have something that it, I probably I'm, should have saved for like our season closer. I um, know you don't. <laughs> showing Chris a picture. Honestly, I just grabbed it because it's such a pretty bottle. Y'all, I have the Blanton's original single barrel bourbon whiskey. This is the whiskey of all whiskeys. So I've been told. Blanton's has always been famous, but it became more famous when it was featured in the action series, John Wick. John Wick always ordered Blanton's. And when they did it, you couldn't find it in any of the liquor stores. John Wick made Blanton's even more famous. This is so good. So it's very holiday-ish, like cinnamon, nutmeg. It's really good. It's a total drink, obviously, by itself. A single barrel. So this is a good one. Yeah, I yeah. messed out the, the big dog for this. Yeah, you, what, you, what are you drinking? You really did. You're way outdoing me. But I will <laughs> say something. My cookie juice has a little something in common with yours. It was purchased by ID also. They sent it to me what? for my birthday. So it is good. the Widow Jane. I'm holding up the bottle. It's, a, it's an That's okay pretty. looking bottle. The 10 year bottle. And it gets wow. very clean. It's a very yeah. smooth bourbon. I've already started sipping on it. And you can hear my ice as it clinks on my glass. Should I be I've putting ice started. in my drink? Because I you always should. drink it straight. Like yes, this. you can. It just depends on if you're going to sip it. I think you should, especially for a Blanton's. It'll go down much easier with a little bit of water. That's so yeah, spicy. It's spicy. But I'm filling the ice. bottle. It's just yeah. so pretty. And it's got this guy on a horse on top. It's I'm going to tell you something pretty cool about Blanton's bottles. Okay. If you look on the back of that horse, you'll see a letter. Okay. It's going to be very small. Yeah, yeah. I got an N. You got an N. Okay. So there are some people that drink a lot of Blanton's, which I do. If you line those bottles up, if you collect the right letters of each bottle, they'll all spell out Blanton's. Oh. That's a lot of bottles, but guess what? I'm missing the L. 
You're only missing one? You got problems. I'm only missing one. Maybe but we should have been this is, this is doing a podcast this is, on with. This is years. It's not like I drink every day. I don't drink no. every day. Let me tell you, I told Justin maybe a week ago, I, I don't think I'm going to drink anymore. I'm just done. I'm not a big drinker. I'm a social drinker, but we're going through the fertility thing. And I'm like, oh, I'm not going to drink. And he looks at me and he goes, you have a podcast now that you literally have a podcast bourbon. about bourbon. And I was like, oh, you're right. Okay. I'm going to do that one night. So honestly, this is the only time I'm drinking. So I'm going to enjoy this. I'm not going to feel guilty. I might be a little lightweight, but it'll be good because we have some good conversation tonight. We really get into. I know we got a lot of stuff to do, but I'm excited yeah. about our guest. She's one of our favorite people. Before we get into our special guest tonight, the topic for today's conversation is very interesting. It's no body crime scene investigation mm. means we don't mm. have a body. So mm. tonight we're going to be talking about a case that was recently in the headlines, but dates all the way back to 1996. It's the case of the disappearance of Kristen Smart. Now in May of 1996, Smart was a student at California Polytechnic University, also known as Cal Poly in a town called San Luis Obispo in California. If you're from California, you're very familiar with San Luis Obispo. We call it slow. It's a little small agricultural town on the central coast of California. And it's really known for Cal Poly. It's a university. It's a pretty large university, like 20,000 students. May 25th, 1996, Memorial Day weekend. And Kristen Smart is about to end her freshman year of college. So she celebrates and goes to a frat party that's off campus. It's around 2 a.m. Two fellow Cal Poly students find Smart intoxicated and passed out on the lawn outside the party. These two students, a young male and female, they decide to walk Smart back to her dorm room. Suddenly, another student from the party, a guy named Paul Flores, he joins the group and he offers to help take Smart back to her dorm room. So the first young male, he then leaves the group and goes home. The female student stays, and as they're walking, they get to the street where her dorm room is located. And at this point, Paul Flores insists that she can go ahead. He's going to take Kristen Smart back to her dorm. So this young lady leaves and trusts that Paul Flores will get Smart home. Now, this is the last time anyone sees Kristen Smart ever again. On May 27th, about a day, two days later, Jennifer Phillips, a friend of SMART's, reports SMART missing to the university police department. Now, the university actually doesn't take a report at the time. They just figure it's a holiday weekend, so maybe Kristen just took a trip somewhere and hasn't returned yet. So the friend then contacts the San Luis Obispo Police Department. They do take a report, but they refer her back to campus police again so that they can handle the investigation. Now, this gets crazier, Chris. It's not until three days later on May 30th. So she goes missing late May 25th. It's not until May 30th that a search party is organized. And this is also the first day that Paul Flores, the last person seen with Kristen Smart, is interviewed. Flores claims he and Smart parted ways near his dorm room. He says she was alive and well when he left her, that he never walked her back to her room. Please also note that in that interview, he has a black eye. And he tells them he got it playing basketball. Please start learning. There's rumors that Paul Flores actually had been eyeing smart and was definitely eyeing her at the party. Now, June 5th, it's 11 days following her disappearance. Kristen Smart's dorm room is finally searched. Paul Flores' room isn't searched until five days after that, June 10th, 1996. She goes missing May 25th. Now, by that time, the school year's actually ended and Paul Flores has moved all of his belongings out of the room. So Chris, what are your thoughts on this so far? You're a police chief at a college. What is the proper protocol here? Somebody's missing and you're not searching the last person who was seen with them. You're not searching their dorm room until 15 days later. Not to make an excuse for anyone in this investigation. In all honesty, that's just piss pouring in police work. In 96, I was policing during that time. So I remember a lot of these rules surrounding missing persons. There was still this mindset that you had to wait a few days or a certain amount of time before you reported a person missing. The training hadn't caught up with the actual facts. You shouldn't wait to report anyone missing. And at the time that you think this person is missing, you should be reporting them now. But back in 1996, I could see where they would say maybe wait, especially on a college campus where there are a lot of students that may go out, they may spend the night with a friend and just not tell anyone. They may say, wait for a day or so, see if they turn back up before they report it. But now we know different. Now we know that as soon as a person is thought to be missing, make the report. 
think the report right then and there. And you can always change it or update it or whatever you need to do in order to remove this person from your missing person's files. But at least you should always report him or her missing. I understand, especially Memorial Day weekend, the university saying, hey, let's just wait a few days. She might come mm -hmm. back. That probably happens, right? Mm -hmm. But they don't even search his dorm room until he's moved out. Who knows what evidence he took with him? You've heard me say this a thousand times. Anytime the foundation or the beginning stages of an investigation is messed up, there are bad things to follow. You don't report her initially when she's first noticed to be missing. It just makes things much, much harder when you don't start, start an investigation with a sound foundation. Let's say somebody's missing now for three days from your college. She just had this happen. And this is in 2022. This just happened. We had a student that went missing and they were out of state. So they contacted the local police department. And because she was a college student, they said that it, they had to wait. 24 hours before they reported her missing. The RA that was with them contacted me immediately and said that, hey, chief, we got this happening. What can we do? I got back on the phone, contacted that missing persons department, and they immediately sent an investigator out to start the initial phases of that investigation. Mm. Luckily, we were blessed, and these investigators stayed on top of it during the initial phases, and they ended up finding our student and she was safe and sound. Better to lean on the side of urgency, right? Absolutely. Because when you do that, you can't go wrong. You're preserving evidence. You're getting mm -hmm. all the information right away while it's still in people's memories. Who did you see? When was the mm -hmm. last time you saw her? What was she wearing? All of those things. We know that the closer in time you start questioning people, the better their recollection is going to be. I think a lot of schools, I'm sure, have learned from this scenario and plenty others. You want to take it serious, especially when a female goes missing, when anybody goes missing after several days and in school. So if they had done that from the start, I think it would have avoided a lot of problems we see later in the investigation of this case. So obviously the way this case was being investigated was not sitting well with the Smart family either. They criticize Cal Poly's handling of the investigation and eventually request that the Sheriff's Department get involved. So the Sheriff's Department does get involved. And more than two weeks after Smart's disappearance, Paul Flores is interviewed a second time now, in this interview, he admits to lying to investigators about his black eye the first time, and he says he actually got it while fixing his truck. He then ends the interview and refuses to answer any more questions. That's the last we really hear out of Paul. Now, cadaver dogs are brought in and four alert to Flores' dorm room, specifically to the stripped mattress. Investigators then search Flores' parents' home, which was nearby in the area, but it yielded no clues. In October 1996, the DA's office issued subpoenas for eight people to testify before the county grand jury in Smart's disappearance. Paul Flores was among those to testify, as were actually his parents, Susan and Ruben Flores. Now, Paul Flores's confidential testimony lasted only about five minutes. So, one can assume in those five minutes he was sworn in and then proceeded to plead the fifth to any questions asked, right? As a defense attorney, not going to hate. Plead mm -hmm. the fifth, get yourself a lawyer. So years go by, there's no arrests, no charges, nothing. Now, in 2002, Smart is declared legally dead. Nobody's ever seen her again, and there still are no arrests. That is until two decades later. It's April 13th, 2021. That's just last year when Paul Flores and his father, Ruben Flores, are arrested at their separate homes in connection with the disappearance of Kristen Smart. Paul Flores is charged with Smart's murder and his dad is accused of helping hide her body. Prosecutors basically say they believe that Kristen's body had been buried beneath the deck of the father's home, but had recently been removed. And biological evidence was found by using ground penetrating radar and cadaver dogs. Chris, it's 2021, two decades later, he was a college student at the time this occurred. He's now in his forties, he's arrested, but there's still no body. So I'm thinking there's going to be some serious evidence. What are your thoughts? The hardest cases, the hardest cases to work in any homicide investigation. I know by the cases. In all actuality, you can't prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the person is deceased. And it right. makes it so hard. A judge can say that, okay, this person is deceased, but do you really know that this person is deceased? That question will always loom in the ears 
of your the witnesses, the victims, everyone that's involved, even the suspects. That, that'll be one thing that the defense will jump up and down about. How do you know this person is deceased? So these and how was are, it done? What how, are you? How, even, how even did if, they murder her? Uh, What's the murder weapon? Yeah. All of that. You have to then guess and make yeah. up a story. The prosecution has to create a story that's believable to a jury of what happened that night. And how do you do that if you don't have that evidence? I've only had one nobody case. And they are extremely hard to solve. I remember so, you've told me about that case yeah. a couple years ago. Mom. It's almost 30 years old. It's a nobody case. And we are just getting to a point of presenting everything to the DA's office. And they've taken a year to decide on whether or not they want to charge the person that we think is responsible. But that's incredible. Decades later again, and yeah. Yeah. you never stop trying never. to search for that evidence, trying to get justice. You never stop. And the, But the killing thing is you lose so much during that time. You've collected and preserved whatever evidence that you can collect during that time. But you think about it, you have witnesses that are passing, evidence that you've collected that is degraded so much that it's hard to even do anything with. There's just so many problems outside of the fact that you don't have a body to say, this is this person's body, this is how this person died. It's just so many factors that go into a nobody case. And kudos to any investigator that has worked a nobody case and had a successful prosecution. Kudos to you. Here, the prosecutors, their theory was that Paul Flores killed Kristen during the commission of a rape. There's factors that they bring into the trial, but I think they also base that on people saying he was eyeing her. He was trying to make a move on her prior to that. So obviously he wanted her and we know she's intoxicated. Oftentimes these things happen. If a guy is saying, Hey, I'm going to take her home and she's intoxicated. We know what happens there. Right. Obviously if this person goes missing, it's not like they were trying to put that person back in bed safely. So the trial for the pair, which is Paul and his dad that got underway in a Monterey County courtroom, because thankfully the defense was successful in having it moved out of San Luis Obispo into mm -hmm. a different County, because you don't want to taint a jury. There's been so much media around this case in California. Mm -hmm. Most people know about it. But if you're in San Luis Obispo, you definitely have heard about it. Not to mention in 2019, there was a really great podcast that came out. And if you want to know more about this case, it's a podcast called Your Own Backyard. Highly recommend. It's a series on this case, a lot more detail, but most of the residents in that town listened to that podcast as well, because it had to do with something that happened in their little town. So in the trial, which got started July 18, 2022, the prosecution presented a case that consisted of evidence that a ground penetrating radar located a six foot by four foot anomaly under the deck of Paul's dad's house, which is the shape of a grave. There was dark staining in the soil that was consistent with stains left behind when a body decomposes. Only a few days after the February 2020 search of the father's home, a neighbor saw the mother of Paul, Susan Flores, and her boyfriend, Mike, trying to back a trailer into the backyard near the back porch. And when officials did find that trailer, they tested the back of the trailer to see what was in there. And it tested positive for a substance that was consistent with either blood or bleach. So either way, doesn't look good. They presented evidence that cadaver dogs alerted to Paul Flores's dorm room mattress back in June of 1996, and that the mattress cover taken from the mattress had a tiny light brown stain, which tested positive for human blood. DNA analysis could not confirm Kristen Smart as a contributor, but they could not exclude her. A woman named Jennifer Hudson claimed that back in 1996, Paul Flores told her that he was at a party with Smart. And that she was, quote, an expletive and had enough of her shit. So he buried her at his place under a ramp. She says she never came forward to tell anybody because she was too scared. So this didn't come out until 2021. But she did get on the stand and testify to that. They presented evidence that Flores' roommate was out of town that weekend. So he had the opportunity to commit the crime. And that his father did show up to the dorm rooms that Sunday, and the dad only lived about 12 miles away from campus, and that he did come to pick up his son that Sunday. It was a holiday weekend. That could be normal, but I think that's part of the evidence they're using to say the father knew and assisted in hiding her body. Obviously, they use Paul's own inconsistent statements against him. That's Absolutely. something you obviously want to do. This is mm -hmm. why you lawyer up from the start. 
not defending Paul here, but anybody who is under suspicion of a crime. And so basically they presented evidence that he told police that she was having trouble walking. So he had helped. But then later he says, oh, I just let her walk to her dorm room. She was fine. They talked about how he said he wasn't that into her, but witnesses claimed otherwise. They presented evidence that he said his black eye was from playing basketball and later changed the story that it was from working on his truck. Now, probably the most damning evidence that came into this trial. As a defense attorney, I cringe at the thought of something like this ever coming into a trial is they had three separate women testify that Paul Flores had drugged and raped them. So the prosecution's case was basically Flores likes to drug and rape unconscious women. That's just who he is. That evidence right there, we know that a jury is willing to maintain this presumption of innocence, especially when this person does not have a propensity to commit crimes. Mm -hmm. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. But that goes out the window, studies have shown, when you are able to present character evidence like this, something that shows prior bad acts. Now, under the law, this was allowed. Even though he was never convicted of these other crimes, it was allowed to show this is his motive. This is what he does. He drugs women and he rapes them. And he probably tried that with Kristen and she ended up dead. Last month, after a three-month trial and more than a quarter century after her disappearance, a jury convicted Paul Flores of murdering Kristen Smart. Now, a separate jury found his father not guilty of helping to hide the body, but that's a different jury. And that's a more complicated issue. They had two juries in this case, one for the father, one for him. So now Paul Flores, who's 45 years old, he's facing a sentence of 25 years to life. And I think he's due to be sentenced December 9th. So we're going to have to wait and see, but convicted of her murder and Miss Smart's remains have never been found. Wow. Very sad. That makes things tough. It makes it very tough from an investigative standpoint. You know how I am about not charging someone, even though, look, it's pretty suspicious. His acts were very suspicious. They raised an eyebrow. But Ooh. enough to convict? Let's so eliminate those three women. Had he been convicted, then absolutely. I would feel like you need to, that, that evidence should come into play when you're talking about a capital murder case, just like this one. But The fact that he was never charged, never tried, never convicted of those three rapes, that makes things very difficult. I believe in our criminal justice system, and I believe that it should work consistently like the book says it should. I'm sitting here, obviously, as a defense attorney, but in knowing all the evidence, even the evidence that wasn't allowed into the trial, I think the jury got it right. There were videos they found of him raping, sodomizing women. He had a lot of that paraphernalia in his home. The DNA kits did did show on one of those alleged victims that it did match his DNA, whether or not it was a rape or consent. Obviously, he was never on trial for that. But I think there's a lot of other evidence to show He had a propensity to probably try to rape Kristen Smart that evening. There was Um, evidence that shows that he tried to rape her? What I'm saying is the circumstantial evidence shows that he probably tried to rape her. She's intoxicated and he's somebody who even prior to 1996 had allegations of sexual assault against him. But as a defense attorney, this scares me because I do believe that if the three women weren't able to testify to his allegations, especially just the graphic information that came in, there was a lot. It was the similarities of he liked to put a ball gag in their mouth and all of these graphic images that were shown to the jury. I think that really plays with them emotionally and that's dangerous. If it wasn't for that, I'm not sure having an excavation site that's the shape of a grave and some soil that may match body decomposing there. I just don't know that's enough. And then a small stain on a mattress, that should not have been enough that in and of itself. But I don't know. What are your thoughts? I think you should have something that points directly at this defendant. The fact that he was the last person that we knew who was with the, the victim during that case. So that's direct evidence. Yeah, I feel the same way that you do, that they probably got this case right. What happened to the charges? Why didn't these women file mm-hmm. charges against him for the rape? We Maybe. know a lot of women don't come forward. They're afraid. And they and honestly, a lot of them are afraid that it's not even going to be prosecuted. It's a he said, she said, unless you went to the hospital the next day and can present evidence, oftentimes we know people get away with it. Right. But now we're talking about a murder. That's why I try to push women out there to press charges. 
because a mindset of a rapist, they won't stop, especially if they feel as though they got away with it and they'll get progressively worse in their action. By prosecuting a person that has victimized you, you may be saving the next victim. That's good. Yeah. That's a good reminder. It's hard. It's hard. It's, it's absolutely hard. hard and then, you know, defense attorneys get in there like me, I've had to do it and you got to cross examine victims. And mm -hmm. I've always tried to do it in the best way possible, but it's not fun trying to discredit someone's story when what evidence do they have? That's what a defendant gets, right? They are due their representation. They are due the right to cross-examination and all of that. But it's really difficult to undergo when you're a victim and you're being re-traumatized. So here's the thing. Three women testified in trial, but apparently 29 women altogether have come forward against Paul Flores. Wow. So that's why I say they may have gotten it right, but... Was there enough for that conviction? And a lot of it goes back to our guest for tonight because oh, wow. she's got a whole lot more knowledge when it comes to these things. And we know that the jury sat there and listened to a lot of experts explain this information. So I'd be curious to find out a little more about how reliable this kind of evidence is, because we do know that prosecutors can oftentimes gloss over or dumb it down so much that it can confuse a jury. And they just feel like, okay, what I heard was there was blood. And what I heard was it was a body decomposing and they don't really hear the statistics or the odds or the likelihood and all of that. And then ultimately they mix that with the sexual assault allegations and they say, let's just convict, let's be safe. So tonight's guest is Alina Burroughs, the host of ID's Crime Scene Confidential, where she revisits astonishing and heartbreaking cases across the country. Alina has 12 years experience as a crime scene investigator for Orange County, Florida. During her tenure, Alina has investigated some of the most disturbing and heart-wrenching cases in the United States, including the 2008 death of toddler Kaylee Anthony and the 2016 Orlando nightclub shooting. I want to welcome Alina Burroughs. We are excited to have you. But let's talk about how fabulous Alina looks. I know. She's going to be on TV right now. Exactly. She got lightning shit and we are sitting <laughs> over here. I ain't even combed my hair today. Sorry, Alina, I you look great, lady. Life. You look great. In meetings all day long. Okay. Yeah, we are. We're a hot mess over here. And you, this is why we're not on YouTube yet, right? Exactly. Figuring this out. As you know, this is crime and cookie juice. Did you pour a drink for tonight? Of course I did. I broke the rules a bit, but I got to represent for a Scottish girl. I have a Scottish drink. I've all got right. my Hendrix and tonic with a twist of lime. That drink is so good. So Alina introduced me to that drink when we were at CrimeCon. So I drink one and I'm, it was delicious. It went down like a soda. And then I'm ordering my second and she comes and puts her hand on my shoulder and she's like, I just want to warn you, these will really sneak up on you. Is that before or after we filmed the Beyonce drop? Oh, <laughs> That was, that was before, right? That's I don't know before. what we were thinking on that one. We got to go back and redo that one. I was in a suit. You can't drop it in a suit. No, it's really hard <laughs> to drop it in a suit. Oh, no. so we are so glad you joined us, Lena. Now, I know that um, you have been listening to some of what we've been talking about tonight. So we want to dive in and ask you a few questions, a yeah. little more about your background. So tell us. What led you to become a crime scene investigator? I was working for the family business. My father is an industrial organizational psychologist, and he has spent a large portion of his career training police officers, basically training police departments how to pick the best police officers to promote and to put in the best positions. So I was working for him and helping police officers get promoted, how to interview and so forth. And I was writing tests and I started always going to the standard operating procedures of all these police departments. And I was looking at the crime scene standard operating procedures or the crime scene general orders, which are basically the rules of how a crime scene unit operates. And I would always go to those and read them. And I thought, this is so interesting. I think this is what I want to do. That is awesome. Now we've seen the show Crime Scene Confidential, such a good show. And we've heard you speak about your work. You embody passion and compassion, definitely. You're one of my favorite, I like to say, empathetic badasses. So tell us, because it's obvious that you loved doing that. What did you love about it? It's hard work. It's hard work. It comes at a price, but I really feel like it's why I am on this planet. I was drawn to crime scene because it's like a puzzle to me. Science isn't up for debate. It just, it is, it is or it isn't. And I love that fact of it. It's just, it's not something that has an agenda. 
It's not something that has a motive. It's simply there for us to find or not. And I always took crime scene extremely personal. Like when I got to the scene, it was me against the suspect. It was, how dare you think you're going to get away with this? Not on my watch. I feel like everybody's big sister and it could be somebody I've never met before in my life, but I feel like that's my role is to be that voice. And uh, it doesn't matter that I've never met that person. That's just my role on this planet. Mm -hmm. I love that. See, that's the drive of an investigator. You have to feel, you have to almost take it personal. And I know all of the training tells you, you can't take it personal. You shouldn't take things personal. Yeah. You have to have something that drives you. And the mm -hmm. only way you can do it is if you're trying to, to maybe even stop that next victim from happening or saving someone else's life, making sure that this person does not commit a crime against anyone else in this world. That's the that's drive it. of an investigator. I don't know what else would have kept me going at three o'clock in the morning, mm -hmm. year after year, seeing what I saw day after day. And let me let you know, I started with a master's degree in 2003 and I was making $13 and 64 cents an hour. There was a time when I was trying to decide if I was going to pay my rent or get food. If I didn't have some other purpose or some drive for some greater sense, there is nothing else that was going to keep me going. So what, I think we can all relate to that one. I, I was in law right. school eating grapes for dinner. Topa ramen was like a luxury. Yeah, I, right. I lived off a bottle of margarita mix for a week. <laughs> Didn't have alcohol in it. It was literally just the mix. Like in the fridge. Well, no joke. But you do what you have to do right. to have the job that you love. And the so struggle bus, I think everybody takes their ride and it makes a lot of different stops and they look at different routes for everybody and it looks different for everybody. And some right. of them are physical and some of them are emotional. Some of them are both. And I think it makes you a stronger person for having made that journey. But that's why I really try not to judge anybody else's journey because right. we have all been on that bus and that the route might not look the same, but we've all been there. So let me ask you this. What would you say is the most troublesome or the hardest part of your job? For me, always it's, the truly innocent part of the population, we use the term victim precipitated homicides, right? That means the victim has played some sort of role in their own downfall. When a drug dealer participates in a, an exchange of illegal activity and they are killed in the process, then people shrug their shoulders and they say, you will live by it, you die by it. And that is less hard, I think, for an investigator to take. But when we have babies that are shot in the process of a drive-by shooting, when we have the true innocent part of the population, children crimes and the elderly crimes and the true innocent part of the population. Child abuse cases were always so hard for me. There were times in the beginning when I would work calls and I would get in my van and drive back to the sheriff's office. I'd cry the whole way back. And then I would be like, all right, get it together, get out and then move on. Try to then just say, look, you're doing everything that you can for this, this child or this whatever, and try to use it motivation for the next time. I think that not becoming desensitized is so important. Mm -hmm. At a certain point, it is true. We get a little, not jaded, but you do get a little stronger in what you have to see. You aren't as shocked after a while. It's like you can still go to bed at night, but there are those cases that they do stay with you and you just don't want to give up. You want to fight. And that's important. That's what we need. We don't want Absolutely. people to just get used to seeing it and saying, well, it's just another one. Let's go about our day because then you don't work as hard. So <laughs> the fact that you were crying in the van on your way back to work, that says volumes about how much this moved you and how hard you were going to work to find that truth. Yeah. And I, it was important to me when I decided to do the show because we're trained in law enforcement to stuff it down and you're not mm -hmm. supposed to be reactive. And they, there's almost this negativity. You can't handle the job if you have human emotions, which I think is a, a total fallacy. We should be encouraged to have the emotions or right? have them deal with them because it's mm -hmm. not healthy to not have those emotions. But when I decided to do the show, I decided that I'm going to feel whatever it is that I'm feeling right out there on camera for the whole world to see, which is right. frightening. But at the same time, I think the world needs to see that these are hard things for us to go through. They're emotional. And they also need to understand that there are people out there that care to this degree for people that they've never met. Mm -hmm. We Absolutely. need to see that. And that this isn't just for entertainment purposes. Yeah, it's on your TV and 
there's plenty of true crime out there and it, it is somewhat entertaining, but ultimately these are people's lives. And that's one of the reasons Chris and I will sit there and we try to hold it in, but at a certain point in reasonable doubt, you're going to see us cry, especially me, because these are real human beings sitting across from you and this is affecting their life and they're heartbroken and it's sad. And so to see that human side, that reminds the viewers, this is real. This is important. Learn from it. Take away from this. Don't just watch it and then shut off your TV and say, okay, I'm going to go about my day. Realize how lucky you are and do your best to avoid something like this ever happening in your community or with somebody, you know, and just learn from it. And that's the purpose of this podcast. So speaking of learning, obviously tonight you heard Chris and I talking about the Kristen smart case. So this is a case where there's nobody And a lot of investigations start out this way, such as the heartbreaking Kaylee Anthony case. So tell us, where do you begin when there's an investigation into a missing person? The first thing you do, as Chris can attest to, is you look for the body. Because when you look for the person, that gives you a clue as to who they were with and their lifestyle and everything else. We don't have a body here, but the first thing that we do is we know who she was last seen with. So that was the first step, I think, in this case. And I think they were looking at Paul Flores right away. I think there was a little bit of lost time with the back and forth between jurisdictions that we saw going between campus police and whether or not they were going to take it or the local sheriff's office was going to take it. So that potentially lost a bit of time. Probably once it was on the media, then that alerts Paul or any potential suspects in the broad scheme of things. Hey, we're looking in your direction. So plenty of time now to start cleaning up or anything else. What are your thoughts when you hear... It's 15 days past someone's disappearance and the crime scene area that you're supposed to be searching is now empty and the person's moved out. Yeah, that's rough. I know that they did search with helicopters because that's a rural area. They were searching on horseback. So it sounds like there was effort made. It just sounds like it was pointed in a bit of the wrong direction, which is hindsight is always 2020. Time can be a friend or foe in an investigation. When it comes to witness testimony, it can be a it can be a friend. When we're looking at people that are afraid to come forward because they're frightened of somebody, passage of time can help because maybe they feel more comfortable coming forward with things. Mm-hmm. When it comes to DNA and elements, is not our friend. Even fingerprints or things that are exposed outside to the elements, it certainly does not become our friend when when we're talking about physical evidence. We have cadaver dogs that are alerting to his mattress. That seems to be a pretty big piece of physical evidence. Each cadaver dog handler actually has to record the hits and the, the negatives as well. So they keep a record of all of those. Like how many times has your dog been right versus how many times has your dog been wrong? So we could look at the the individual accuracy levels of the dogs. That would be something interesting to look at in that case. If there's a body that's decomposing or just a body that's no longer alive, how long would a body have to be there for a cadaver dog to be alerted? That would be a good question for a canine handler. I'm not sure that I would be able to answer that, but I do know that even if they have something that's been set there and moved you would potentially get a a cadaver dog to hit on that. Even if a a deceased individual had been there, had been present, and then had been moved, you would still expect to get a positive. Okay. Yeah. So there were the cadaver dogs. That's right. And they alerted to that area as well. So it's not just a small stain, which somebody could say, Hey, it could be period blood or something. Yeah. They're not going to hit on blood. They're hitting on the odor of decomposition, which is completely different. So we have that we've got the forensic anthropologist that looked at that area of disturbed soil So they're using ground penetrating radar. And what ground penetrating radar does is it basically looks like a box that's on a handle that you drag over the earth. And then it shows you an area of disturbed soil. It doesn't show you what looks like a body. It's not gonna look like a skeleton under the ground. It's not gonna look anything like that. It shows you the strata of the soil because anytime you dig a hole in your backyard, you go out there and you would see, right? You've got rocks, you've got some dry soil, you've got some moist soil and some grass. If you were to dig a hole in your backyard and then you were to replace that soil, you're not going to replace it in the exact same layers that you took it out. So what GPR does is it shows you, hey, the normal layers or that strata of the soil has been disturbed and replaced. So it could be from anything. You're planting a tree there. Sure. Like basic digging or it's showing you there's been a disruption to that normal strata of the soil. 
Okay. And I've excavated buried bodies before. You take the shovel and you take a hole out of the ground. You can see layers, different colors of sand. It's going to be dependent upon where you live, what the strata, what the soil looks like, how wet it is. I'm in Florida, so you can't dig far, very far down before you get water. But depending on where you live, that strata is going to have an appearance. So if you were to dig something up and put soil back, it's going to look different. So that's what the GPR is saying. And the GPR said that area was about four by six. It's pretty consistent with the size of a human. Suspicious. It suspicious. It would, if you went and dug up and planted a rose bush, it wouldn't be four by six. Okay. They did some soil sampling on March 15th and they came back on April 12th and did some there as well. April 13th is when he was arrested. So that tells me that whatever they found on April 12th, was solid enough that they felt like they could arrest him and charge him with murder. So I would be very interested in seeing what they found at that particular location. They also found fibers of varying colors consistent with the clothing that Smart was seen wearing the night she went missing. They found that in his yard? Yes. In his father's yard? Yes, in Ruben mm -hmm. Flores' yard. So the other thing from that, the testing, they did testing on those sites and they found that it tested positive for the presence of blood. Now not enough for them to do actual DNA sequencing on because we are talking about a long period of time that has passed and DNA has degraded. DNA can last as long as it's at a good temperature and it's been stored properly, but we're talking about being stored outside in the dirt, in the yeah. elements, rain, yeah. heat, not ideal circumstances. But if my research is correct, they used a test called HemeDirect. So there are presumptive tests that give you a, yes, it's blood. There are presumptive tests that say, yes, it's human blood. There are all different types of tests that investigators have available to them. HemeDirect will tell you blood. It will tell you it could be blood of a human, a primate, or a ferret. It will give you basically narrowed down to that. So unless he's got a reason to have buried ferrets or buried primates in his backyard, then we can be pretty sure that the blood is belonging to a human. Wow. So just those three things. Yeah. That just genetically, the hemoglobin that it tests for is close in those three animals, wow. that particular mm -hmm. test. Well, the primates, I guess, isn't yeah. surprising, but no. I didn't know yeah. we had that much in common with ferrets. So I have a chemist friend and I asked him to help me do the math on this and I'm going to get real nerdy for a minute, but stay with me. Love it. So the average hemoglobin content in blood is about 120 to 180 milligrams per milliliter. The lower detection limit of this test, of the HemeDirect test, is 40 nanograms per milliliter. If we look at the volume in an average drop of blood, average drop of blood contains 0.05 milliliters. Because everybody can picture what an average drop looks like, right? That means that at the lower detection limit, this test would basically be able to tell you if there were two nanograms present, all, that's all it would need in a, something the size of a single drop, two nanograms. So keep that in mind. Nobody knows what two nanograms is, right? Well, I was about to ask you to break that down. <laughs> to break that down, we're thinking two nanograms. The average poppy seed on your morning bagel has 300,000 nanograms. That, it's oh. 300,000 nanograms in weight. So in terms of what it would need to test positive, it needs two nanograms out of an average drop hmm. with a poppy seed weighing 300,000 nanograms. Is that so, sensitive enough for you? It's a little sensitive there. Wait, it's not right. looking for a that lot. That is how no. sensitive these tests are. So that's why it was able to, when they're testing April 12th, they're able to get a positive result on that tiny bit of blood present in the soil after this amount of time but they cannot get DNA from that. The DNA is broken down so much that it's undetectable. That's undetectable. So poorly degraded by this point, they cannot sequence that DNA, but there was enough from that test because that test is so sensitive for them to be able to say that we are talking about human blood that's present. And that little amount they can tell that's accurate. They did multiple samples. They got multiple positive results. So we don't really worry about negative results because we're just digging dirt. So if I get this bit of dirt over here and it's a negative, then I can assume that there wasn't blood in that particular area that I sampled. But a positive to me would be. Any bones or hair that's been buried for that amount of time underground. Yeah. Would those survive? Yes. In, the, in those types of elements, right? Yes. Yeah, we would expect to see hair. So hair is extremely sturdy. Bone is sturdy. In my guess that he's been moving multiple uh -huh. times. 
Now in my CSI wish list, and if you had asked me how this whole thing went down and we're seeing these soil disturbances that the, that he's moved the body, the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. We know that his MO is taking women that are under the influence or potentially he's drugging them himself. So Alina, it sounds in your opinion, then the evidence does tell a story of possible murder, even though we don't have a body. Yeah, it's not as easy. If we had a body, we would have a potential for a rape kit, for potential for her DNA or his DNA under her fingernails. We would certainly have a lot more opportunities, but it's not impossible because evidence tells a story. Lack of evidence tells a story as well. It's just a different story. And here there is so much circumstantial that when it all comes together and the prosecution did what they had to do, finding individuals to say, I'm a rape victim. He sexually assaulted me. He even had computer searches. Those always kill me. Why are you doing computer searches? These people don't learn, but they're sick. And he was doing computer searches of, he wanted to watch videos of women being raped. And it's even sicker that it's all out there. But that's pretty damning evidence, right? Like you said, it's showing the motive of what probably happened. Now, whether he actually strangled her or was in the process of raping her and she fought back, he's got a black eye, very possible, a ball gag, something something in a way he's possibly trying to cover her mouth from her screaming yep. and she passes out and that's it. I think we'll never know. If there were a body today, considering the amount of years that have passed and the amount of time that she's probably been in soil, could you still get that story as to how it happened? It would depend on if it were just bones in soil or are the bones in a container? It depends completely on how it's located, where it is. Everything yields the potential for evidence, depending on how it's for lack of a better term, packaged trash bags are a great source of fingerprint evidence. It just depends on how it's put together. And you talk about testimonial evidence. We have these women coming forward. We have, I think the woman that testified saying that he put her underneath the ramp. They tried to discredit her. They found that she had a drug history. So they brought that up in court as a good defense attorney will and discredited her testimony saying that she had used methamphetamine, I believe, and said that was just something that she created. They definitely did their job in trying to poke holes and discredit. I think that when it came down to it, they didn't have the proper experts to uh, contradict what the prosecution's experts were saying were found in that soil. And the cadaver dogs, they did have the canine handlers testify as to where the cadaver dogs alerted. They also alerted to the backyard and the soil area as well. My hope now is, depending on how sentencing goes, Is there any chance that him knowing where this is headed, will he ever, to give a family closure, will he ever say where she is? Will he ever give that gift to a family member or will he stick and say this? Will Ruben in time on his deathbed, will anybody come forward and say, yeah, you're right. I want to get right with God. I helped. I did this. This is what we did. This is where she is. I always keep hope alive and I always think that we will in time, things will be revealed. I definitely hope the mom being a mother, being a woman would come forward with what she knows. I wouldn't count on Paul. If he committed this crime, he committed this crime back in 1996 and then proceeded to continue to rape women and Mm -hmm. pursue women. These are the allegations. Of course, he's not convicted of it, but we do know that women are making these allegations. So I just don't have the faith that Paul would ever come forward unless he's an old man on his deathbed, maybe. You but might that talk family in, in prison that's because that's true. the other aspect of it is the ego side and the guys always talk he'll brag about it maybe he won't talk to come clean but maybe he'll talk to brag about it so it sounds like alina you felt justice was served i think so when we're talking about the the multitude of evidence you have to start to look at the picture being painted and i also look towards is there a picture being painted towards innocence do you see that pic- do you see a picture of innocence being painted no, absolutely not. It's in every investigation that we've ever worked, there are still some questions that will always remain, but I don't think that they got this one wrong. And I'm sure if we took a really in-depth, deep dive into the case, we would find something that really just points to his guilt. In, in cases like this, there are still a lot of questions that could be dissected and looked into. And I hate that. I hate it for the victim's family. I hate that for everybody involved. 
It's always hard when you have a case built on circumstantial evidence alone. Mm -hmm. It's really yeah. difficult to just say, okay, that's it. End of story. That's how it happened. And you know what? We'll never know the real story of how it happened. Sometimes this happens with wrongful convictions. You end up hearing that evidence could have been explained another way. I think the most damning is the cadaver dogs alerting to the mattress in the dorm room. And then again, alerting to the backyard, but it's difficult to also make the leap of somebody who's a rapist is a murderer. We know that not all rapists are murderers. They're sick, they're violent, they're disgusting, they should be put away, but doesn't necessarily say they're murderers. So that's the leap that one has to take here. But then again, looking at all of the evidence put together, I could see what would compel a jury to say, especially once you hear how evil he has to be to drug and rape women and those allegations. I know it's easier for a jury at that point to say, oh, we're just not dealing with a good guy. And right. so whether they got it right or wrong, the evidence came out and that's what they based it on. Uh, I'm a little more confident hearing you because I was really interested in the soil part, right? It's positive for blood, but what kind of blood could be in there? And their experts never came in. They were supposed to have an expert testify to that. And then they said he couldn't show up. There was a conflict in schedule. I think it probably just wasn't going to help the case. So when you're left with their experts saying, look, this is human blood and it happens to be in a dig site that is the size of a human grave, doesn't look good. So you got to go with that. Like I said, I'd be surprised to find out he didn't do it, but you brought a lot of clarity to some of these questions and the evidence and hearing how confident you could be in that evidence is very helpful. So I don't know about you guys that are listening, but I know for Fatima and myself, this has been a very enlightening conversation. And I thank you, Alina, for coming on. Tell us where our listeners can follow you on social media and tell us about the show. Sure. You can follow me on Instagram at Alina Burrows and Twitter the same. You can watch episodes of season one, Crime Scene Confidential on Investigation Discovery or Discovery Plus. We know that channel. We do know that channel. <laughs> it sounds a little familiar. We super appreciate and we might have you on again because you're such a nerd and we love that stuff. That's why Chris and I love doing this. But thank you for staying up late with us on the East Coast. You are awesome. Cheers, Cheers. guys. Good night. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Crime and Cookie Juice. Please make sure to subscribe and share this podcast. Join us again next week as we discuss how DNA can help or hurt a case.